Well, good morning. As I was uh, preparing, um, putting the finishing touches on uh, just what I believe God wanted us to talk about this morning, there, there was a song that kept coming to mind. It's by a, an artist named Andrew Peterson. He's uh, one of my favorite artists. I think he's a great storyteller. He's not really well known, but again, I, I think he just really tells good stories in his songs. And one of the songs that he writes was just going through my mind over and over again. It's called The Silence of God. And in this song, um, it just talks about his personal wrestlings with doubt, his personal wrestlings with fear and even unbelief, what feels like storms in his life. And now these cast him into this moment where he started to experience the silence of God and what that experience drove him to. And in an interview later on, he would say that this is one of those songs that he was actually pretty scared to record. As you can imagine, talking about your doubts and your fears can be a pretty vulnerable thing. But he would go on to say that in, in what is pretty typical of a, as he put it, a gospel reversal, he took this thing that felt so vulnerable for him, this thing that he was so scared of, and he made it one of the most meaningful songs that he's ever recorded, The Silence of God. And I think that's something that a lot of us, um, when we think about those difficult moments, those storms in life, whenever it feels like maybe God is silent, we don't, we don't know what's going on around us, and we come out of those seasons and we look back, it feels like we know God more intimately than ever before. I think that's something we can relate with, many of us. And that's gonna be exactly what the disciples would experience in the text this morning. It begins out in verse 35. On that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. So it's saying on that day, and, and what, he's, what's, uh, what it's referring to is all of chapter four. So in chapter four, verse one, it says, he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea, and he sat down. And so there's a situation where all these crowds are crowding around Jesus. The only way he can really teach and communicate in a helpful way is he's going to get into a boat, push away from the water a little bit, and begin to teach. And it's in that moment that he would teach the parable of the soils and the sower. And then in verse 10, we see him privately turn to his disciples and give uh, this explanation that only they would hear. And he would continue on in this fashion, talking about a light and a lampstand, and he would continue on with a parable of a seed going into the ground, and it grows on its own, in its own timing, and then he continues once more with this parable of the mustard seed and how this tiny seed would go into the earth but grow up so large that all the birds of the air would come and nest in its branches, and it finishes off in this way, that he would speak in parables, verses 33 and 34, how he's speaking in parables, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. When we look on this text, by the time we, we get to the end, we realize that there's a lesson that Jesus wants to teach his disciples, and you see clues of it, for example, in verse 36, when he's saying they're going to leave the crowd, they're going out on their own into the middle of the sea, of course, a lesson that they never would have expected so all of this is happening on a single day. And what we're going to find out is some lessons in the kingdom of God, they're going to come, they're going to demand a storm. And as much as we don't like it, as much as it just really disrupts everything that we think we know about God or think we know about life, some of these lessons... They have to, they, they require a storm. They demand a storm, as we'll see in just a moment. And 
The pattern of verse 35, 36, and 37, I think, is something that we're really familiar with. You know, Jesus gives this direction. He initiates movement in his, in his disciples. He says, we're going to go to the other side of the sea. And so you see them begin to take the action. They're obeying. They're following Jesus. It says they're getting the boat. They're taking him with them. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of their obedience, they're following Jesus' direct, uh, directives. In verse 37, this is when the storm comes. I think this is a pattern that many of us can relate to, right? I mean, how many times, if you're a Christian, how many times in life have you felt this sense that, you know, God wants you to do something? Maybe it was a scripture that you read that really impacted you and you feel like you need to take some certain steps to obey this. Or maybe there's a move involved. You need to relocate to a certain area, change a job. There's some kind of thing that you need to do to obey Jesus. And as best as you know how, Um, As Jesus initiates this movement in your life and he gives this direction, you're doing the best you know how to follow him. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself in a storm that you never expected. Does that sound familiar to any of you? I see a few heads nodding. I I think that's something that a lot of us can relate to, right? And this is exactly what's happening with these disciples, this is a story that I think a lot of us are going to be able to relate to. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? I think it's helpful to remember that some of these guys were sailors, like not sailors, some of these guys were fishermen. They understood what it meant to be out on the water. Oftentimes their fishing would take place at night. And, you know, the, the, the weather surrounding the Sea of Galilee has been the same for the past 2,000 years and even beyond that. You know, storms can pick up on this sea very quickly. They can die down very quickly. But in the evening time, these storms can be especially dangerous, especially forceful. But, you know, some of these disciples, again, being fishermen, very much... Uh, aware of what was going on on the Sea of Galilee, very much, you know, they may have had some experience even with this. There was something about this storm that seemed especially dangerous to them, especially frightening to them. But even in the midst of this storm that literally looks like it's about to, that it's threatening their life, I mean, I don't know about you, if I was in a smaller boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and, and water's pouring over the edge and starting to fill your boat, in the middle of a storm like this, I'd be pretty terrified too. Um, But I don't even know if that's the thing that scares them the most in this moment. I think one of the things that scares them the most is that Jesus isn't doing anything, that he's silent. And, you know, not just silent, he's asleep. And again, it's something we can relate to, right? I mean, this is a real time, this, this is a historical event. This happened in real time in this day 2,000 years ago. But again, I think some of the parallels are things we can really relate to. You get into that storm of life. And what's one of the first things you notice in that storm? Why is God so quiet right now? You know, in the past, I don't remember him being this quiet seemed like he was much quicker to respond to my prayers or it seemed like when I went to the word, things would come to my mind much quicker than they are now. Right now, it just feels like complete quiet. And if you're in the midst of this storm like this, that has to be terrifying. Because, I mean, when it's like that, we feel kind of abandoned, right? 
But it's not even that. I mean, you look over, and not only is Jesus silent, not only is God silent in this moment, he's asleep. Now, I think there's a reason why that's there. I think there's a reason why this is part of the lesson. You see, this would disrupt, and this would appear to contradict everything that the disciples knew about God, what they knew to be true about him. You see, I know that in the, in the book of Acts, it says when the crowd saw these disciples who eventually become the apostles of the church, it said when they observed them preaching and teaching, they were kind of mystified because you know, these disciples, they were untrained, unlearned men, right? That was the statement. But even though they were untrained men, it doesn't mean they were ignorant. You know, first century Jews, everything in their culture uh, was about the scriptures, And so they grew up, even from birth, they were hearing the scriptures over and over again. Many of them would memorize large sections of our Old Testament. And they would have them in their hearts. So they knew the scriptures. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus, when he was teaching, he would be able to communicate so fluidly, moving in and out of the Old Testament, as uh, Andrew, uh, Pastor Andrew preached last week in uh, chapter 4, verse 32, when it's talking about the birds of the air nesting under its shade, Jesus moving in and out of the Old Testament in the midst of these sermons, and the people would be able to follow this because they knew the Old Testament. But in this moment when Jesus is asleep, this is a problem, because what, what have we learned about Jesus so far? Well, you know, as we look at the beginning of Mark, you know, the video, uh, the, the, the voice over the video is reading from Isaiah, this prophecy that God would come in the flesh and that all people would see him, that God would come and visit us. And so at the beginning of Mark, that's what it's talking about. This God is arriving and it's Jesus, And then Jesus would arrive on the scene and he would begin preaching and he would say, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, it's because he is at hand. And then he would move on and keep preaching and he would be saying things with such authority and such clarity that it was unlike anything anybody had ever heard before. And then he would come across people who were sick and they needed healing, people who were paralyzed, and he would heal them in a way the world and Israel had never seen before. And then he would come up to people who were demon-possessed, and we'll see another example of that next week when Pastor Jeff preaches, people who are demon-possessed. And we, sometimes we don't even have a category for that, but when you see it happening in front of you, you feel completely helpless, and then Jesus would come up, and he would have this authority to command even these evil spirits, and they have to obey. And even in some instances, screaming out, you are the son of God. And so the book of Mark is setting up Jesus as the highest of highs, God in the flesh, the Son of God. But again, he's sleeping, and why is this a problem? And, you know, the Hebrews, they understand the scriptures. Well, I'm gonna take you to just one example of why this is a problem. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 121. It begins in a very familiar way. A lot of you may be familiar with this psalm it begins with i lift my eyes up to the hills from where does my help come you, maybe you just see it on greeting cards all the time you know in the inspirational section that like there's like four cards in the inspirational section <laughs> it's funny down south there's like a whole wall of inspirational cards up here there's like four <clears throat> and some of them are really bad but anyways <laughs> 
so it starts out, I lift my eyes up to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You see, one of the hopes of the God of Israel is that no matter what would come, no matter how vulnerable that moment of going to bed at night and you no longer have the capacity to protect yourself or protect your family or protect your friends or you have to lay down for the night and forget your, uh, your worries about your business or your relationships, all of those things have to go away when you sleep, but the hope is that this God that we serve, he never sleeps. He never slumbers, and because of that, he's always watching, and because of that, he always cares, right? It's one of the hopes that we have, but here in this moment, like many of our storms, we see something that we don't quite understand. We're experiencing something that we don't quite understand, like the disciples in this moment where God is present and he's sleeping in this moment when they're about to die. God is silent in this moment when they need him. And it's not just that it appears to contradict everything that they believed to be true, everything they knew about God. They begin to question God's character. Master, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? We are about to die. Don't you even care? I, I honestly think this is probably one of the most emotionally raw and, and visceral moments in the entire gospel of Mark. When they're screaming out in the face of the Son of God, don't you care? Don't you care that we're about to die? I, I think that's a question that is echoed throughout all of human history. When we're in the midst of the storms, in our own lives or we see thing hap- things happening in family members, maybe there's a cancer diagnosis or, um, you know, in our church recently, uh, there was a, a, a young baby that had to go into the hospital for three weeks unexpectedly and praise God, he's now back home. But I can't even imagine what a storm that must have felt like. And I praise God for the faith he was giving to our brothers and, uh, our brother and sister um, to have the faith that they did. But I think in that moment, I would have been feeling and agonizing, God, don't you care? (laughs) When we look at our city and we see all the homelessness and drug addiction, we see human trafficking, God, don't you care? And you look at the political state of our nation, God, don't you care? And you see terrorism around the world, you see famines, you see children starving to death, you see all of these things and the world for centuries, for millennia, has cried out those words, God, don't you care? Questioning the character of God in this moment, not only are the disciples questioning God's character, much like we do, they're also forgetting the gospel. Because you see, isn't it odd? Because there's a little bit of rebuke and not a little bit, there's a lot of rebuke in what they're saying. They're, they're pretty upset at Jesus and they're kind of correcting him in a way that, you know, Jesus, this shouldn't be happening. But did you notice? I mean, they're about to die and they're going up to the son of God in the flesh, shaking him awake, don't you care? When the fact that, the, the fact that he's here in the first place indicates that he cares. 
And when you look at that word perishing, it's really interesting to study this word. There's a few different ways that it's, uh, it's understood in the Greek. You know, one is just kind of this destruction and this ruin that can come to your life. And the other is literally a physical death. And of course, this is what the disciples are worried about. It's like, don't you care that we are perishing, Jesus? We're going to die. But there's actually another layer to this word in the Greek. And it's a word for, for lack of a better phrase, but maybe there's not a better one. It's a word for eternal damnation, for being eternally separated from the presence of God. And in this moment, it's, it's just so strange. And, and again, I, I would probably have to put myself in their shoes and I would, I would do the same thing. They go up to the Son of God who is here because he cares. And they're saying, don't you care? We're going to die physically. When the whole point is, is he's there because he cares and he knows that they're going to die spiritually. They forgot the gospel like we do that the fact that this son of God would come and leave the throne of heaven and participate in the activity of this world and the fact that he's asleep shows that he really did take on the weakness of humanity in this. Not only being tempted as we were, as it says in Hebrews, not only uh, getting thirsty as we do, as it says in the book of John when he meets the Samaritan woman, but also getting exhausted and fatigued like we do. But in this moment, I think we see that Jesus, we forget the gospel. And if we forget the gospel, that's when we start questioning everything else. When we forget that God truly does care. And he's, there's a, there's a scripture that comes to mind and it's, he who did not spare his only son, will he not freely give us all things? If the greatest debt was paid, the debt of our sin, if the greatest price and the greatest cost was given up in the Son of God to secure our salvation, to redeem our souls, to give us new life and resurrection in the indwelling spirit. If that was all God did, that would be more than enough. But again, in the midst of our storms, we get thrown off, don't we? And we question God's care. We question God's love. And, and maybe when I say we, maybe I just mean me, but I'm assuming it's safe to say that about you guys as well. But even though, as we see in verse 39, I mean, even though Jesus was asleep, he has this moment, he wakes up. And he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. This would be really weird to see, guys. I, I tried to picture as I was preparing, I tried to picture, you know, we've been on a cruise before, so standing on this giant boat and it's rocking and there's all these waves and it, was, it wasn't even near a storm like this, but I'm just trying to picture what it'd be like to stand maybe at the stern of the boat and look over the edge and there's all these waves and then someone standing next to me and maybe they raise their hand and they speak to the ocean and say, hush, be still. Or maybe on the edge of Golden Gardens Park or Alki Beach and there's all these waves crashing. Can you picture yourself standing there and someone next to you just does that? You'd be like, I'm getting away from you. This is kind of weird and awkward. And, 
And in this moment, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be experiencing what they did. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says this, and everything goes perfectly calm. I can't even imagine how speechless I would have been. The fact that he can just speak to the sea and it obeys him. That the sea and the wind recognize the voice that spoke them into existence in the beginning of creation. And they obeyed exactly what he said. In this moment, we see that even though Jesus shared our human experience, even though Jesus did get tired, even though he did get exhausted and fall asleep, it doesn't change the fact of who he is in Psalm 121. Let me read the next half of that psalm. We read the part in verse four where it says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And even though Jesus did experience our humanity, he never gave up that he is God. He never gave up the fact that he is the keeper of our souls and he never ceases to. And how important is that for us to remember in the midst of these storms? How important was it for the disciples to remember that in the midst of this? Even though he physically slept in that moment, he never ceased to be their keeper. In verse 40, and he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? I can imagine there's a lot of things that Jesus could have said in this moment. There's a lot of lessons. Maybe there's another parable he could have thrown in there. But at the heart of everything that was going on, the issue that he wanted to address was faith. And what that tells me is that Jesus is intimately concerned with the composure of our faith. Now, let me provide a couple of definitions here. You know, one, I I think an apt definition for faith would be just the willingness to believe what God says is true and to act on it. And I think that's something we could all agree with, that if there's something that someone mentally believes in, mentally assents to, or says, yeah, that's true, but then their life doesn't look like anything what they say they believe, we wouldn't call that person a person of faith. We'd call them a hypocrite, right? And so the, the, the faith that you see in the Bible is one that believes what God says is true, and then you see it play out in their lives. You see that it's a real faith. It's a real belief because it's showing up in their lives. Now, that word composure, that's, I think, a word that we're familiar with, even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of circumstances that are out of our control, there's a calmness and there's a quiet, right? That's what composure is. And in this moment, we see that Jesus was concerned for the composure of their faith. Because I can imagine as the seas were picking up, as the waves were picking up, they're crashing over the boat more and more. The more the ocean, or sorry, the more the sea and the, and the wind and the waves became restless, so it was in their hearts, Right? If we can use a geeky math term, that would be a direct relationship. And if you draw a line on a graph, the higher um, 
the higher the restlessness of the sea goes, the higher the restlessness of their hearts, right? But what Jesus is concerned about is an indirect relationship that perhaps even more restless the seas get, the more restless the storm gets, perhaps the more restful our hearts are in him. Trusting the gospel, trusting in his care. This is what Jesus is intimately concerned about at the heart of all of this, and that tells me that everything else, every attitude, every decision, every word is going to be born out of that decision to have a composed faith. Moving on to verse 41. They, the disciples, became very much afraid, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Something just happened in the disciples. We haven't yet talked about that fear issue. There's two types of fear that are used in this text. The one that Jesus describes in verse 40 is throughout its usage in the Bible, there's never a moment where this type of fear is used in a positive way. It's always negative. And in fact, another way to describe this is cowardly. Why are you being cowardly? And it's so negative, in fact, the the final use in the entire Bible is in Revelation 21.8, I believe, when it talks about people who are not redeemed or made new or washed by the blood of the lamb, they're sent into this lake of fire and it lists off the types of people who would go into these places and one of them is the cowardly this completely unbelieving and terrified state. However, there's another use, uh, there's another type of fear that's talked about, and that's in verse 21. Sorry, verse 41. It's a completely different word. It's used in all kinds of ways throughout the Bible. One of those ways where it's used pretty extensively is talking about the fear of God. So we see the object of their fear has changed. We see that it goes from they're terrified of the sea, they're terrified of this situation, they're terrified of losing their lives, and all of a sudden the fear switches to what well, switches to Jesus. They're now terrified of Jesus. And in fact, uh, there's a, uh, a double word use in verse 41. So it means they were afraid of the storm, and now they're doubly afraid of Jesus. Well, what is that? What does that tell us? Well, I think, I think maybe we should address the fear of God for a moment. I know that maybe there's some people in here that have, maybe you have a, a religious background, maybe in a certain type of church where fear of God was a very, very negative thing to you. Maybe it was this idea that uh, God was this distant cosmic figure. He was just waiting to squash you at every moment. Um, the second you mess up, the second you sin, he's just eager and he's chomping at the bit to just destroy you. And there are religions that will do that to you. That is a very, very unhealthy fear of God. But a healthy fear of God, what we see portrayed in the Bible is something that's supposed to liberate us. And let me explain. Every single one of us is subject to fear. Every single person out that door in this neighborhood, in this city and around the world is afraid of something. Everyone is afraid of um, maybe being vulnerable, being known. Someone's afraid of being rejected. 
And in these fears, it, it causes us to make all, have all these attitudes and all these decisions that ultimately end up being destructive. Some of us are afraid of being alone. And maybe some of you can recall all of those times when you made horrible decisions in your life out of a simple fear of being alone for the rest of your life. A fear of rejection can be horrible for us. Some of us are afraid of coming across as incompetent. Some of us are afraid of failure. And all of these fears that can exist out there, they're crippling and they feel like chains, don't they? But there's something in the Bible, again, called the fear of God that it, it transfers our fears from these things that keep us in chains and it moves it to the place where it was always meant to be, this fear, this reverence, this awe of the God who made us. And whenever we shift, our, whenever our fear is shifted to that place, we find that we're freer than we've ever been. And so we see that the disciples in this moment, they had at least some measure of shift in their fear. No longer fearing for their lives, no longer fearing the storm. They're now, they now have a healthy fear of Jesus. And what that means is they now see him more clearly than ever before. But here's the catch. It happened as a result of the storm, because of the storm. This lesson, I would argue, it couldn't have been learned apart from the storm. But praise God, because of it, they now see him more clearly. They understand him more deeply. And that's what I think Andrew Peterson meant when he talked about his song, The Silence of God, that he had this moment where he stepped out into the unknown and he let go of these fears that he had, but in the midst of it, no matter what came of it, he did notice that he understood God more clearly and his love more deeply. It ends with this question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The question is left open-ended for a reason. It's a rhetorical question because it's about to move on to something else And that means anyone who ever reads this has to give an answer. If this one called Jesus can control the wind and the waves with just speaking, who then is he? And this is a moment for Christians we have the opportunity uh, to do as we talked about a few weeks back. We have an opportunity to repent and believe the gospel repent and believe it anew. And it doesn't mean we have to be resaved. It means that we just refresh our minds on the truth of the gospel. Who then is this? And if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, even though he doesn't give an answer immediately, so far the book has resoundingly given the answer that Jesus is God, eternally the son of God. It's the very reason why the sermon series titled is the way it is. Because this book, this gospel account is over and over again putting forth Jesus as the Son of God. I, I find it fascinating that God would come into this moment with his disciples and sometime later we've, we will see in the gospel of Mark that Jesus would enter into a storm of his own. Maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane is where that storm begins, where he's agonizing in prayer before his father. And he's so stressed, he's so pressed that he begins to sweat drops of blood. 
He would move on from there and be betrayed. He would be falsely accused. He would be slandered. And because he's God, he would ultimately be blasphemed. He'd be punched. He'd be hit. He'd be spit on. He'd be flogged. He would wear a crown of thorns. And ultimately, he would go to a cross. And in this moment, all of the weight of sin from history past, present, and future would begin to pour on Jesus. The weight of guilt, the weight of shame, the weight of sickness, the weight of rebellion would all begin to fall on Jesus. The peak moment of the storm. The moment where the disciples would cry out, God, do you not care that we are perishing? And in that moment, what does Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, even though here the disciples, they just misunderstood, Jesus was really always there in that, and he wasn't silent. In that moment, Jesus hanging on a cross, God would be silent. God wouldn't, God the Father would turn his back on the sin that his son was bearing. And in that moment, when Jesus cries out, he would experience real silence from God and real rejection. And he did this so that moments later in the temple where there was a veil that would separate the holiest place where it was said that the high priest could go in once a year and be in the presence of God, it was done so that this veil would be torn in half signifying that access to God is now open to all. And that we can now access God and we don't have to be afraid of his silence anymore. And we don't have to be afraid of his rejection. We are now welcomed into this gospel relationship where we no longer have to be afraid. And of course, Jesus would say, it is finished. And the sins would be paid for. The debt would be paid. He would give up his spirit. He would die. He would go into the grave. And then he would rise again, putting to death forever our fear of death, of rejection, of alienation from God. All because of a storm that Jesus endured that we deserved, but he took instead. So that in the midst of our storms, we wouldn't have to be afraid. I want to invite you now to, we're going to participate in the table together. And Christian, as you come up and as we enjoy um, the cracker symbolizing the body of Christ given for us as we dip it in the juice symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins. I wanna encourage you, no matter what season you're in, I want you to come and do this in faith. And as you do it, I want you to recite it to yourself but ultimately pray it to God and just declare that he is good and declare that he cares. God, I know you care. Regardless of where I'm in, where I'm going, where I've been, I know that you care. And this, as you hold it in your hand, you can tell yourself, and this is the reason why, because of this. Because you did this, I know that you care. And if you're not a Christian in this room, I encourage you to please consider these words. Please consider these words. That question hangs out there for you. Who then is this? And one day you will answer Everyone on this planet, past, present, and future, will answer this question. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And you have the opportunity to do that as a beloved and forgiven and redeemed and accepted child of God, or you, have, you will do it as a conquered foe. Please embrace this Jesus who cares for you. We have some prayers in the worship guide that you received on your way in. Meditate on those prayers. Think of them. Just pray one of those. Ask God to show you if this is true. But please consider this and we pray that one day you will come and join us at this table. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that we can see you in the storm and that we can see you more clearly because of the storms. I thank you, God, that you're faithful. I thank you, God, that you paid the greatest price and that you did everything that was necessary to demonstrate that you care by giving up your son, Jesus, for our forgiveness. Help us to never forget. Help us to fight in faith to believe that you care, that you're good, that your love is forever, God regardless of what comes. If there's anyone in this room right now who this story hits home because it feels like they're in the midst of a storm right now, God, I pray that you would produce a great faith in them and help them to believe and to remember the gospel and then to believe and insist on your goodness. And for those of us who maybe just came out of a storm, God, please help us to reflect on your faithfulness, to carry us through that. For those of us, God, who are about to go into a storm that we're, we don't expect, that we're not, maybe not even ready for, God, help us not to be afraid, but to hope and to believe that you will see us through everyone. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for being the son of God. We pray in your name, amen.